Welcome to episode 23, Simple and Important Psychopharmacology Highlights for the Non-MD Clinician by Dr. Lance Steinberg, MD. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi, this is Lance Steinberg. I am a physician, specifically a pediatrician, adolescent medicine specialist, and psychiatrist. Most of my time is spent in psychopharmacology of all age groups. We are here today to discuss psychopharmacology, have a lot of fun with it, and look specifically at both the clinical aspects, the relevant aspects that you need to know to help your clients. We're going to be discussing all the different aspects of medication intervention. And of course, it's only one intervention that's made to help a client. My plan is to introduce you to different categories of medications, including the different kinds of antidepressants, the different kinds of antipsychotics, anti-anxiety agents, stimulants, and so forth. And to really emphasize to you how these are being used on a day-to-day -day basis with many individuals that have psychological issues. Many times we can get by solely with talking therapy. However, that's not always the case. And we need to help an individual with medications because for the most part, many of the issues we're dealing with are carried on the neurons inside the brain and can be helped directly that way. But again, I really, really need to say that not all the time do we need to have medications but always think about using medications as an augmentation strategy for your patient. A little bit about my background. I went to undergraduate studies at USC in biology and psychology, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, Magna Cum Laude, and then went to Dartmouth Medical School. At Dartmouth Medical School, I greatly enjoyed all aspects of medicine and wound up taking an interesting route ultimately to do what I'm doing today. I did become a pediatrician initially and then subspecialized in adolescent medicine. I did that at Stanford and that was particularly helpful for me to see the interface between neurology, medicine, pediatrics, psychology, and psychiatry. An emphasis there was placed on cognitive behavioral therapy. At that time, DBT was not invented yet. And there were still some psychoanalysts in the hallways lurking to get patients. As you know, that's not as common now, but it can be helpful in certain circumstances. After that, I went on to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and specifically worked on psychiatry. In psychiatry, I became especially interested in psychopharmacology. I've been teaching for about 20 to 30 years at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center through UCLA and teaching residents in psychiatry medical students taking psychiatry, child psychiatry fellows, as well as attendings. I greatly enjoy teaching and I want to make this fun for you. I would ask uh, for greater audience participation if it was possible, but obviously that's going to be a bit of a challenge today. But can I ask by a show of hands, how many people would be interested in interacting directly? Okay, good. So I expect you to participate. Today's lecture 
is really going to encompass many, many, many different aspects of psychopharmacology. And I'm going to try to make it interesting. It's often said to be a very boring subject, but there actually are a group of nerds like myself that really, really enjoy this stuff. And just think by giving a person a little bit of medicine, they can suddenly talk again, as we see in mutes um, or people that have selective mutism. Um, We can help people concentrate and focus. We can lift them from the depths of depression and despair. We can help them with manic issues. We can bring them back to reality. We can stabilize their moods. We can help them lead productive lives. Realistically, though, it's also because you as therapists help out. This is only a small part of the armamentarium we have. Medicines are a small part. You are the major part. You really help in so many different ways. What we're going to be doing is starting off with antidepressants, and we're going to be using the common names that you're going to be hearing, whether it's in a clinic, on the wards, with clients one-on-one, so the brand names. And I'll try to remember to include all the generics as well. Antidepressants, as you know, are really uh, a, a category that describes a group of medications that are not only used as antidepressants, but frequently as anti-anxiety agents and anti-obsessive compulsive disorder agents and agents for anorexia and bulimia for lots of different reasons, but we still call them antidepressants. Just to get you used to the ideas behind antidepressants, we're going to be using some of the names that psychopharmacologists use in the different subcategories of antidepressants. And I'll tell them to you now, but we're going to then go on to the other different aspects of psychopharm. One of the most common categories used, and probably the one that you're going to be most familiar with, are SSRIs, which are cyclic selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And that would be like Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and Luvox, Lexapro, and Selexa. There's actually a few more. Keep in mind, I'm really addressing the ones that are used in the United States more so than across the world. We have cyclic SNRIs as another subcategory or family in the antidepressant category, and that is selective serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So as the SNRI implies, it actually affects both serotonin and norepinephrine in the system, not just serotonin like the SSRIs. The next group are NDRIs, norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors. There's only a few in that category, but we'll be discussing those because norepinephrine and dopamine, just to put in the back of your mind there, are more exciting, more energizing types of chemicals that will help people that have low energy or energy or anhedonia, a lack of ability to have hedonistic pleasures. How many of you could tolerate having no hedonistic pleasures? Well, I certainly can't. And so at times uh, we all get into those lows, but this is a very important part of looking at depression and all types of mood disorders. One of the medicines that you might be familiar with in the NDRI category is Welbutrin, also known as Bupropion. And believe it or not, it has a couple of similar medications that are exactly like bupropion, except there's an added chemical 
called bromide instead of hydrochloride. And I'd share that with you because some people feel a plenzin, which is basically Wellbutrin but with hydrobromide, is a stronger, more effective medication. And it may have to do more with it still being a brand name. We'll get into the effect of generics in a moment because generics are not always equivalent despite what the pharmacist tells you and your patient to the brand names. We're going to talk about cyclic unusual MOAs, which means mechanism of action. It's a really great term to throw around at cocktail parties and impress all your colleagues and definitely the psychopharmacologists. These include newer medications that don't exactly fit the same profile as SSRIs, SNRIs, NDRIs. They include Vibrid, Trintelex, and a few other medications. And then we have tons and tons of older medications that are not always bad. In fact, sometimes they're preferred and far more effective. And some of these medications include tricyclic antidepressants. We'll talk about those in a little bit. Those have fallen a little bit out of favor, by the way, because they can actually harm the cardiac conduction portion of the cardiovascular system. Why am I telling you all this stuff? Well, it's important. You don't want to give medication to somebody that has an underlying cardiac condition that could actually make the cardiac condition worse. So we'll talk about that further, but tricyclic antidepressants, which used to be very common the names like Tofranil, uh, Amipramine, Norpramin. These are commonly used in some medical specialties, but not that common anymore because of the cardiovascular risks, and particularly with children. So those of you working with children probably have very little experience in seeing a client on these medicines. Once in a while you will, but they're a little bit more risky than our more current up-to-date antidepressants. Moving on. In fact, let's talk about generics now because I think this is really important and I think it's gonna hold your attention more than just me naming off a bunch of medications. So generics have always been touted to be equivalent. All generics are equivalent to each other and are equivalent to the brand name. Well, most people, most scientists don't actually agree with that. The FDA has actually allowed a certain amount of leeway in the actual bioavailability of the main chemical and the generics as it is compared to the brand name. That is to say, an active chemical, you may only need to have 80% bioavailability, but it could go up to 105% in a generic compared to 100% for a brand. What does that mean to you and your client? So the generics can potentially be 20% or so weaker, less potent, and in fact have been known on rare occasions to cause great difficulty in somebody used to a more potent medication. If a patient goes to the pharmacy and they get a new generic, what if that generic is only 80% and they used to be on one that was virtually 100% equivalent to the brand. That's one-fifth less potent. And we have all had clients that if you decrease their medication by 20%, they can frequently commit suicide, things of that nature. Okay, You're never going to be the actual prescriber, but you don't necessarily want to push 
using a generic and you're a non-physician and you then convince your client to tell the physician, oh, don't worry, I know I can't afford the brand, but let's just go to different generic. You don't want to be the one that does that because it's complicated. And many physicians are actually confused about this as well. It's a very unfortunate situation. You do have to question if your, if your client is actually doing quite well for some time, then suddenly has a decrement and starts going off track. If they suddenly got a new generic or they went from brand to generic. Equally problematic is a person that can just tolerate the 80% generic and then switch to a brand which is far more potent and potentially having more side effects. So just be aware that there are differences between generics and brand. And one has to keep this in mind when prescribing medicine. And I know, although you may not believe it now, many of you will be asked by a physician, what is the best medicine to treat the patient with? That's not necessarily reflective of a very well-informed physician asking you to comment on psychopharmacology and that it's not your specialty. And one might be best saying, you know, it may be good to get a consult from a psychiatrist or a psychopharmacologist. Moving away now to the next category, away from the antidepressants, away from the generic issue, but into the medication overview of antipsychotics. I always like to ask how many of you are on antipsychotics? Well, it's began to get quite common, especially as augmentation strategies. I'm sure you're all familiar with commercials saying, oh, add Abilify, add Rick Salty. If your current medication is not helping you with depression, by adding a little bit of this type of medicine, suddenly your symptoms will clear up and you will be cured. That doesn't always happen. But these medicines are virtually ubiquitous now with most of the general practitioners. We have a lot to say about these and we will come back to them later but they're much more serious in their side effect profile. There are many categories of antipsychotics. We actually have third generation antipsychotics, second generation antipsychotics, and first generation antipsychotics. These are all different and they all have different side effect profiles. Why is this important? Well, these side effect profiles can cause permanent damage to people's bodies and they can have very, very harsh, even immediate side effects that we all have to know about. Examples of the third generation antipsychotic would be Abilify or Aripiprazole. Second generation is more of the what what is called atypical antipsychotics and I'm sure you're all familiar with Risperdal, Zyprexa, Seroquel and medicines of that nature they have different side effects and then your first generation antipsychotics Haldol very famous ORAP, only used in certain situations, Thorazine. These are all good in their own way and they all have different side effects. Then we're going to talk about anti-anxiety agents, insomnia agents, mood stabilizers, and yes, stimulants, which are always a lot of fun and bring a lot of energy to the conversation. So, let us now go into 
specifics with antidepressants. You have a general idea of what we're going to be talking about. And hopefully we can introduce these medicines again. They'll sound more familiar to you. As you know, in teaching, one of the critical aspects is repetition. And that's why I sort of introduced you to these medicines initially. So they'll sound a little bit more familiar to you. Now I'm going to get more specific. And I'm really going to emphasize the SSRIs that everybody is familiar with than the SNRIs and so forth. So looking at the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, again, they mainly work on serotonin and they are fabulous, fabulous medicines. The first one, of course, that was invented in the 80s was Prozac. And Prozac to this day is just a fabulous medication. As a matter of fact, Prozac, according to meta-analysis done in England, is the most effective antidepressant to people 25 and younger. And this is through many different cultures and uh, all different countries around the world. Very little argument about that. Of course, by the time you listen to this, maybe a little bit different, but most of us that keep up with the literature, if somebody comes in, and they're 25 or younger, and they're depressed, and they haven't been on other medicines, we'll usually use an SSRI first, and classically it will be Prozac. Prozac is also known as fluoxetine. It's a great medicine, and again, it's highly effective. And as with all medicines, you start low, and you increase it very slowly. Prozac is known to have a very long half-life which means it stays in the system for quite some time. has good points and bad points. When something stays in the body for a long time, one of the problems will be the time it takes for it to leave the body, and half of it is still in your body two weeks later after the last dose. This is important if you're going to be changing from one SSRI to another medicine, because you can't do it just one on top of the other. You have to be a little bit more careful with, with Prozac that's in your body for a long time. And if you had an allergic reaction, God forbid, then you really have a problem. It's not in and out of your body like other medicines, for instance, Lexapro. Prozac is used in many, many, many situations. It's used in depression, as I mentioned, in children up to the age of 25 or younger. It is used in obsessive-compulsive disorder, anorexia, bulimia, social anxiety, anxiety. It's used for just about everything. The great advantage of having the long half-life is that if a person misses a dose in general, the amount of medicine still in their body, the plasma level of Prozac hasn't been changed that much. So if you have a, an adolescent that might be a little bit forgetful, busy, doing other things, and forgets a dose, it's not as worrisome. So it's a good medicine. This is probably the most familiar medicine to you. Another medicine that's really, really common is Lexapro. Lexapro is very short-acting in contradistinction to Prozac. Lexapro, also known as e-citalopram, is related to Celexa, which is citalopram. Lexapro came out a little bit later. Lexapro, as a medicine, has some of the fewest side effects known to humankind. Importantly, this medicine has hardly any side effects. And so it's a great medicine for somebody that's hypersensitive to their body from somatic perspective, neurologic perspective. The one thing that we are concerned about with Lexapro 
is you can only go to maybe 20 milligrams according to the FDA, which doesn't give us a lot of leeway. And again, very similar to Prozac, it is most commonly used for depression, anxiety, things of that nature. It's relative Selexa, Cytalopram, has been more recently understood to have a very significant difficulty in association with cardiac problems. Selexa actually is a combination of a right-handed version and a left-handed version of medicines, just like the Twix candy bar commercials currently being played in the United States. There actually is a right-handed and a left-handed version. They're isomers. Selexa contains both and Lexapro is only one of the isomers. Selexa has some cardiac effect that is not good. It's very unsafe. And way back when, when it was initially evolved and just prior to putting on the market with humans, it was tested in baby beagle dogs. So I ask you to look, visualize Snoopy. And Snoopy, baby beagle dog, uh, for some reason their cardiac system is hypersensitive to medicines and sometimes felt to be a little bit more akin to the human heart. And just picture beautiful Snoopy on his doghouse, ears flying back, suddenly having a heart attack. And that's what happened in animal studies. However, it didn't come out for quite some time. Why am I sharing this with you? Most of the psychopharmacologists always look at animal studies in addition to the human studies because this was predicted many, many years ago. If Snoopy's gonna have a problem, so goes the nation. And we really did have problems with it. So we're limited in the amount of Selexa we can give. And you have to be aware of the cardiac state of a person before you give it. Lexapro, pretty much to the same extent, but not as serious as Selexa. We then have Zoloft and Luvox. Zoloft is a very commonly used medicine. It's a magnificent medicine. Um, some people do get a little bit of weight gain with it, but it's great for anxiety. It's great for depression. And many people just love this medicine. Luvox is less common, used mainly on the East Coast. It mechanistically works on different enzymes metabolized differently. And it has a little niche, mostly because of advertising for obsessive compulsive disorder and the long acting version for social anxiety disorder. It's a very, very good medicine and um, lots and lots to say about Luvox. It's just not used as much these days. And finally, there's Paxil. Paxil is very, very uncommonly used in Southern California, mainly because it causes the most weight gain of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And it can cause a lot of havoc if you abruptly stop the medicine. But the weight gain is a big issue for many people. Not everybody gets it. But again, in Southern California, it doesn't go over quite well. Moving on to other cyclic antidepressants, let's go on to the SNRIs, which we spoke briefly about. They affect serotonin and norepinephrine. Serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs. So there are basically four of them. Two of them are related. Effexor XR, also Effexor, which is the short-acting version, and Pristique. These are really good medicines. These were some of the first to be discovered. They're especially good if you need something activating. Um, the norepinephrine, which is like adrenaline, really gives people a lot of energy. So if you have somebody that has anergic type of depression, this is very, very, very helpful. And it does, however, require a lot of following 
in terms of blood pressure because it can raise blood pressure, especially when it gets to 150 or above in milligrams used per day. Prestique is a, what we would call a cleaner molecule and has less side effects. It's an excellent medicine and it is a relative of Effexor. We have Cymbalta, very famous. It's been advertised greatly and Cymbalta, oddly enough, is used for many things, not only as a fantastic antidepressant, also as a fantastic anti-anxiety agent, and also for fibromyalgia and pain and things of that nature. It's a little bit more well-known than Effexor and Pristique with regards to that, but sometimes Effexor and Pristique can be used also for that type of fibromyalgia, musculoskeletal pain. Cymbalta is also one of the few FDA medicines approved for children with regards to anxiety, which many psychopharmacologists don't even know. So I'm sharing that with you now. Again, something very important at cocktail parties. But I would not suggest actually having Cymbalta with alcohol. It doesn't really go well. In fact, I would always suggest avoiding alcohol with most of the medicines here. Fetsima is actually a phenomenal medicine that goes with many, many, many other medicines. The most famous combo is Fetsima with Welbutrin. Um, both are very, very activating. And many of us love Fetsima, but it only comes in brand. It's very expensive. And with a name like Fetsima, it has to be good. Many people wonder where the name came from. I'm not really sure, but it's an excellent, excellent medicine. So those are some of the newer antidepressants. And remember, we do frequently combine antidepressants. As I mentioned, all of these SNRIs are frequently done in combination with Welbutrin. But Welbutrin is a slightly different medicine. In fact, lo and behold, let's talk about Welbutrin now. Welbutrin is an NDRI, norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. And remember, it has the relative aplensin. And there are lots of different forms of Welbutrin. Welbutrin is really well known to help with both depression, low energy, even focus. Some people use this off-label, in other words, for using non-FDA data, but significant data, for ADHD. It's also used in smoking cessation, and it's known as Zyban. Welbutrin is very activating, so it has a lot of good points to it. However, some of the weird side effects with it include lowering the seizure threshold a little tiny bit more than other medications, which means that it's frankly contraindicated in anybody with a past history of seizures. It's also contraindicated, in other words, you're not allowed to use it, in people that have had eating disorders or do have eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia in particular. I try to avoid it in anybody drinking alcohol. Alcohol plus Welbutrin equals seizures. Again, very, very, very dangerous. And this has to be explicitly told to the patient and or patient family and ideally documented in the chart. It's very, very dangerous. Also, an overdose. It is not a good medicine to be on. It can be very, very toxic at even low doses. But an excellent medicine when used properly. Moving on to other cyclic antidepressants. And these are the ones that have an unusual mechanism of action. And what do we call mechanism of action when we're with a bunch of nerdy psychopharmacologists? MOA, mechanism of action. Now, there are four that we're going to discuss very briefly. Remeron, Desiril, Vibred, and Trintelex. Remeron is an old medication. It's been around for many years, and it's called mirtazapine. 
it also is not a favorite in Southern California. Why? It causes a lot of weight gain and can also cause sedation. Here's the positive. It is great for anxiety. It is great for people that want to gain weight. It is great for people that have onset insomnia. So here on the West Coast and to some extent the East Coast, it's not uncommonly used when people are given stimulants during the day, but they have trouble sleeping at night. There are all sorts of tricks that we have, but one of them that is commonly used is giving a quarter of a tablet of Remeron about an hour or so before bedtime. And that will frequently cause the person to go to sleep, wake up hungry. And as you can imagine, a cachectic young child, um, unfortunately suffering from the anorectic-like qualities of stimulants, um, can greatly benefit from a medicine like this. We have a medicine called Desiril. Very well known. It's been around for a long time. Also used quite frequently for insomnia, just like Remeron. Desiril has a different effect on the cardiac system, and that's important because it affects a part of the cardiac system called the ventricles, and it also has an interesting effect in some males, and it's called priapism, and that's when the blood goes into the penis, and the penis become in, becomes engorged and can stay up uh, for three to four hours at a time. Yeah, I know, it sounds good. Sort of the old-fashioned Viagra type of thing, but it's really not because if a penis stays hard and erect like that, there's very, very little blood flow, which can ultimately cause gangrene, which can cause problems with viability of the penis. So if the person's not depressed before they took this medicine and they get this priapism, they'll become very depressed. It's actually considered a urologic emergency if somebody gets priapism. For myself, I mostly prescribe it to females, and I think there has been one or two cases of priapism in the clitoral area. We then have Vibrid, and Vibrid's a great medicine that is touted to have very little effect of, of or side effects with regards to weight gain uh, and uh, sexual side effects. So it's a good medicine for that. Remeron has very few sexual side effects, and so does Welbutrin. Those are some of the few medicines that have very few sexual side effects. Trintelex, rather new medication, mostly serotonergic, hits a gazillion serotonergic receptors, very easy to use, and a lot of people find it just magnificent. And in fact, studies have shown that in people that are depressed, it may help in processing speed besides just depression. So at a lot of lectures, especially with um, colleagues that are on the depressed side, and you say that it's going to speed up their processing speed, uh, they all want to know if I have samples of this medication. We're going to go to the older medications now, and I'm just going to touch upon them briefly because you're not going to be using them or seeing them that often. Tricyclic antidepressants. We talked about Elevil, Tofrenil. There's one called Sinequan. These are all really neat, hardly used. reason they're hardly used except maybe in certain specialties like uh, gastroenterology, because sometimes it's used with irritable bowel syndrome. Sometimes also it's used rheumatologically for pain. And sometimes in pain medicine, it's also used. But they can cause cardiac effects. They're very lethal in overdose. And we very rarely use them in children. Always requires an EKG prior to its use. We have monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So this, in this case, it's M-A-O-I as opposed to M-O-A. So monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These are old-fashioned medications, antidepressants, that are very serious if you happen to have certain types of chemicals in your nutrition. Um, you're not allowed to eat certain things. 
And if you do, you can stroke out and the, your client, the patient, uh, can have very, very serious problems with stroking out, having high blood pressure crisis. So we very rarely use them in children, if at all, because of the impulsivity in children. And they are effective in certain types of depression where nothing else works. So in some adults, we use them. Antipsychotics. Antipsychotics are a little bit more common. I'm just going to touch mainly upon the antipsychotics that you're likely to see. The most famous one, uh, as you know, uh, currently is the third generation antipsychotic known as Abilify. It's been in many, many, many commercials. So specifically presentation to the user, to the patient, direct marketing to the patient. And it's used as an augmentation strategy and is very effective as an augmentation strategy. But it can have some side effects. It has a relative called Rixalti. And those are both considered third generation antipsychotics because of their mechanism of action. These both, however, can cause permanent tardive dyskinesia, which is muscle spasms. And these muscle spasms can be very, very serious. They don't always happen. They're not that likely, but they can happen. And in fact, with most of the antipsychotics, they can happen. And this is part of the informed consent. Also, with these types of medications, you can get extrapyramidal syndrome, uh, EPS, which may involve different muscular movements, um, sometimes uh, stiffening of the musculature. Uh, sometimes the muscles feel like they're in a cogwheel. Sometimes the neck gets stiff and it won't move around, almost like a wry neck. Sometimes the eyes look up. It looks like um, the person is stuck looking up. We call that oculogyric crises. These are pretty significant. And yet these medicines overall are very, very helpful. There's also been some discussion as far as Abilify and maybe disinhibiting certain people. That's still being looked at. Interestingly, Abilify and Risperdal are two medicines that are FDA approved for aggression in autistic individuals. And that's very important. We have a lot of data using these medicines in autism and aggression. Very, very important to know that, especially for those of you that are treating both children and adults with uh, autistic behaviors and aggression. Second generation antipsychotics include Risperdal, Phenapt, and Vega. I'm sure you're familiar with all of these, LOL. Uh, Risperdal is probably the most famous of all of them. Why is that? Risperdal is a medicine that has had a great heyday also with people that have autism, just like Abilify. It also has some very unusual side effects, and the side effects include increasing a chemical known as prolactin. Prolactin is a chemical that is actually common in people that are pregnant and that are breastfeeding. It means prolactation. And some people, men and women, can have sudden tenderness in their breasts as well as milky discharge from their breasts men and women. So again, in certain situations, this might cause a lot of depression to the men, maybe in certain circumstances not, but especially to young men and also to women as well. This has to be dealt with very seriously, and this is part of the informed consent process. It's Risperdal and increased prolactin. 
these other medicines in general in the third generation, second generation, they all generally, not exactly the same, increase body weight, increase cholesterol, increase triglycerides, and potentially can affect the glucose level, hemoglobin A1c. So there are certain people with genetic predispositions and tendencies that you have to be exceedingly careful in whether you want to give these medicines in the first place, as well as monitoring these medications specifically for these parameters. And it needs to be looked at carefully when you're giving this to children because long-term studies are only so old at this point. And we don't know if we're really permanently affecting some of these children in what some people might call metabolic syndrome, in which they have increased weight, cholesterol, triglycerides, and glucose. We certainly know that diabetes is becoming more of a problem in this nation, as well as difficulties with weight. So just to always keep this in mind, these medicines are not freebies. They're very helpful, but they always have strings attached. No pun intended, um, there's no free lunch. In fact, the lunch is frequently doubled and quadrupled in many of these medications. And I know you're eating this up. Okay, enough of the dad puns. I'm going to continue on with more second-generation antipsychotics that you may or may not have heard of. Uh, Zyprexa is a phenomenal medicine, also known a lot for its weight gain. But it, when combined with Prozac, has been known to be very helpful in bipolarity, in stabilization. And actually, there's a product called Symbiax that uses Zyprexa and Prozac, and it's very good in bipolar depression. Latuda is a, a newer medicine. Um, it's often used in kids. Always double check what I'm saying because every once in a while the FDA throws out new ideas, issues, contraindications. But Latuda is generally um, pretty good on many, many different levels, including some of the weight issues. Geodon is a very fascinating antipsychotic. It's known for the least amount of weight gain, but also with potential to causing difficulty with the heart, particularly the QT interval. Then we have some other medicines, including Vralar, which is brand new but being publicized greatly. Totally different mechanism of action. Quite an excellent medicine. And Closeril, which is usually the last line of defense in people that are schizophrenic or bipolar, and nothing else has worked. It has a lot of side effects. But when used properly, it can save a person's life. Finally, we have first-generation antipsychotics. These are the famous vitamin H, also known as Haldol. And there's Melaril and Orap. We don't use these very often. Once in a while, we do use them in Tourette's, particularly uh, Haldol, sometimes Orap. And we use them very rarely because of the high likelihood of tardive dyskinesia with these medicines. And ORAP has particularly difficult cardiovascular um, aspects to it. Looking at anti-anxiety agents, and this is going to be a review, oddly enough. So we have, believe it or not, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors we discussed the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, as we've discussed. We've talked about Remeron. And we also have a couple of other medicines that are used as anti-anxiety agents. There's an antihistamine called Atarax that's actually FDA-approved for anxiety. Buspar is FDA-approved for anxiety. It's a unique medicine unto itself. It really helps with irritability and can be used in augmentation. 
It's not as known. Some people don't believe in it as much. Certain tricyclic antidepressants are used as anti-anxiety agents, not very commonly nowadays. And MAO inhibitors, when all else fails for social anxiety, MAO inhibitors sometimes work. And of course, the famous benzodiazepines, you have to be careful with those. And let's go through them. These are the Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Valium, and so forth that are really good anti-anxiety agents, but they have the potential to be very, very addicting. And if combined with alcohol, it can cause death. Other anti-anxiety agents, besides the benzodiazepines we just talked about, I mentioned Atarax. Some people use a medicine called periactin, which has some anti-anxiety effects, also increases appetite, and can be used at night, especially for children that need to gain weight and also need to go to sleep, like ones that have been on stimulants. We talked about um, Benadryl, not yet, but over-the-counter, it's not a bad medicine for anxiety. It's not a great medicine either. And then we have anticonvulsants, particularly Neurontin, that has been used quite nicely for anxiety. Other anti-anxiety agents include medicines that affect the cardiovascular system. Beta blockers are the most famous, Inderol, to Norman, specifically for performance anxiety. So if a person has increased blood pressure and pulse prior to talking in front of people, performing in front of, in front of people, these will decrease the pulse rate and suddenly the body feels calm, the mind interprets the body as being calm, and then suddenly people feel calm. There's another group of medicines besides beta blockers called alpha adrenergics, intunev capfe, these are mostly used in ADHD, and they are FDA approved for ADHD. They're mainly beneficial for impulsivity and hyperactivity, but also help in anxiety. Let's go to the stimulants. Always like to uh, end with stimulants. There are so many, many stimulants. I mean, they are multiplying. There are two main families. There's the methylphenidate or Ritalin family and there's the amphetamine family. The Ritalins are the most common. Recent data indicated that children and teenagers are likely to respond to the Ritalins and, of course, some to the stimulants in the amphetamine family, and the adults are more likely to respond to the amphetamines. We've sort of known that for a while, and also, in general, comparing the stimulants, Ritalins or, or methylphenidates and amphetamines, the Ritalins are generally more gentle. They have less of an effect, but still have an effect on appetite, potentially sleep, and appetite can affect growth, so we always have to watch growth, possibly blood pressure and pulse, and possibly mood, and especially when the mood um, occurs following the medicine leaving the body. We call that rebound. But it's generally well tolerated and they come in all different forms, short acting and long acting, liquids, orally disintegrating tablets. They're all very effective, um, but you got to find the one that fits the child best, both in the way it works as well as the duration of action. Ideally, you want to get a medicine that doesn't cause too much of a mood problem or appetite problem, but also covers the entire school day. You can always have a booster at the end of school. There is the amphetamine-based medicines, and they're all excellent, but they're a little bit more intense in decreasing appetite um, and thus potentially eating less, and we have to watch their growth even more. We have to watch insomnia a little bit more. They are a little bit more interesting when it comes to college students and the value on the street. Adderall tablets are notoriously um, purchased in schools and colleges for studying. And contrary to popular belief, you don't have to have ADHD to respond to a stimulant. And if you do respond to a stimulant, it doesn't mean that you have ADHD. But these medicines can be very 
significant. They also can cause in some people priapism, decreased blood flow on the periphery of the body, and also psychosis. So we have to really watch these things. They also have an antidepressant quality when used correctly. Finally, we have new stimulants, new vigil and provigil, that are fascinating. Their mechanism of action is slightly different. They're used a lot in just individuals that uh, are critical in lower energy states. And so a person that has massive fatigue, cancer sometimes, um, depression, these can be helpful. Finally, we're going to be ending with mood stabilizers, bringing you a little bit down from the stimulation you just experienced with the amphetamines, the methylphenidates, the modafinil, and the armodafinil provigilant of new vigil. Mood stabilizers include lithium, anticonvulsants, and some people will also include antipsychotics and an antipsychotic hybrid, as well as omega-3 fatty acids. Lithium is the classic gold standard for bipolar disorder, virtually regardless of age, and it is the one that has been most proven. It also has anti-suicidal qualities that no other medication on earth has. It is a phenomenal medicine, but it needs to be medically monitored before, during, and after its use. But an excellent, excellent medicine. The anticonvulsants that are often used are not always FDA approved. They include Lamictal, which is currently very hip and cool in California. And it is known for, if anything, lowering weight. Thus, it's especially common in Southern California. But we always have to watch out for a rare side effect called SJS, or the syndrome of Steven Johnson's, Steven Johnson's syndrome, which is a rash that can be lethal. It's very rare, but you got to be aware of it. Depakote is used mostly in men, sometimes in older women, but mostly in men. Depakote can affect um, PCO, polycystic ovary syndrome, can actually cause hormonal problems. It's also a horrible thing to be pregnant with. And there are a lot of other things. So we try to avoid Depakote in potentially um, a women that could potentially become pregnant. And there are some people that also use Tegretol, which is very, very rarely used and also is a little bit complicated to use, specifically in certain populations because its metabolism is not complete and can cause very serious reactions. Trileptol and Neurontin are used, but they're not particularly effective as mood stabilizers. Neurontin we mentioned as an anti-anxiety medication. And trileptol we use, you know, if somebody needs a mild amount of stabilization, but not classically in bipolarity. Other medications we use are antipsychotics. We talked about these third generation ones, the Abilify, Rixalti, Risperdal, Zyprexa, and so forth. They're very helpful. And then the antipsychotic hybrid, Zyprexa and Prozac, we talked about some Biacs, very, very helpful. And there have been some studies that have shown omega-3 fatty acids are particularly helpful in mood stabilization. Let me again wind up by saying that I hope you've really enjoyed this broadcast, learned a lot, and I'm always available for questions. Again, my name is Lance Steinberg. I'm assistant clinical professor at UCLA Geffen NPI. I have private practice in psychopharmacology. I do a lot of consultations as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, but most known for psychopharmacology consultations as an, an adjunct to your treatment. My phone number is 818 224 3540. My fax is 818-224-3639. And my email is lancemd18 at gmail.com. Good luck, and we will cure the world together. Bye-bye. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.